Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone, and welcome to this, our fifth edition of a Great Sea Fights special. If you have missed out on the others, do please find them in our back catalogue. We have multiple episodes exploring the histories of the Battle of Tsushima in 1905 and Jutland in 1916, those enormous showdowns between fleets of steel battleships. We have also covered the Battle of Cape St Vincent in 1797, surely the moment that Nelson would have been most proud of in his glittering biography, and the Battle of the River Plate of 1939, that key naval engagement at the very start of the First World War. We needed to correct the obvious bias of ignoring the medieval world, and so here we are looking at one of the most iconic of medieval sea battles, the Battle of Saint-Mathieu of 10th of August. 1512. This episode brings to you three contemporary accounts of the battle and its aftermath, each with a unique perspective, fascinating in its own right. For important background, do make sure that you have listened to part one of this Great Sea Fight special, as the first episode explored the events with a compelling narrative and provides important background information. Coming tomorrow, we will have part three, which will explore the challenges posed to historians of recreating a medieval sea fight, with particular reference to this battle, but also to the Battle of the Solent in 1545, in which the Mary Rose sank. We start today with a brief note about the historical sources available to historians of the Tudor Navy. Researching naval history in the reign of Henry VIII presents some problems, although it can also be said that it is much easier than in the late 15th century and the reign of his father, Henry VII. In that earlier period, there are only a few primary sources concerning naval matters, the most important being a set of accounts relating to the building of the Regent and the Sovereign at Portsmouth, both in 1488. Other documents are few and far between, and come from perhaps unlikely places, such as the household accounts of the Duke of Norfolk. For the reign of Henry VIII, 
The state papers were collected together in a series of volumes by indefatigable 19th century archivists and scholars. Later, a comprehensive calendar of these documents was produced under the title of The Letters and Papers of Henry VIII. This is the indispensable starting point for any research in the period. The volumes include accounts and administrative documents relating to the king's ships, the beginnings of the Royal Navy, but few accounts of actions. No logbooks were either kept or survived from this period, nor are there any personal accounts of shipboard life. Fortunately, the brilliant Navy Records Society, if you don't know about them, do look at navyrecords.org.uk, produced two early volumes which greatly assist historians of the period. These are Oppenheim's The Naval Accounts and Inventories of the Reign of Henry VII and Spont's Letters and Papers Relating to the War with France, 1512-13. It also should be noted that the letters and papers of Henry VIII have been digitised with an excellent search facility and are available freely online at British History Online. These documents are in English, though some obsolete technical terms are used, but most of them can be found in Smith's Sailor's Wordbook, which if you don't know it, do search it out. For Henry VIII's navy, we also have the remarkable Antony Roll, a lavishly illustrated inventory of the entire navy made by Antony Antony, a man who worked in Henry's ordnance office. Now divided into two parts, half is in the British Library, and the other half, once owned by Samuel Pepys, is in the Pepysian Library at Magdalen College in Cambridge. The images are quite astonishing. I'll make sure that some are posted online. The Antony Roll, however, dates from the 1540s, and the battle we are talking about today, the Battle of Saint-Mathieu, is more than a generation older, in 1512. Which makes the Battle of Saint-Mathieu of August 1512 all the more remarkable, because there are a number of sources, both English and French, which mention the battle, as well as its aftermath and in particular the death of Edward Howard the following year at Blanc-Sablon. So now do please enjoy these contemporary descriptions of the battle, the Battle of Saint-Mathieu and the Battle of Blanc-Sablon the following year. Uh, this episode was put together with the help of Susan Rose and Tim Concannon. Many thanks to you both. The first account is from the Venetian ambassador Niccolò di Favri. It's fascinating as it includes a great deal of information on life and manners in England, as well as war news. Venice was allied with England in the Holy League against France. The real issue in the war was the French invasion of northern Italy and its consequences. England had sort of tagged on to satisfy Henry VIII's desire for glory. Venice was the first state to have regular diplomatic missions abroad, the main purpose of which was to supply news of importance to the economic interests of Venice. The writer here was newly appointed to the court of Henry and was a member of the Venetian elite who served in the councils of the Republic, as was Francesco Gradenico, the man to whom Favri was writing whose ancestor had in fact been Doge in the 14th century. The war news related to the War of the Holy League and is an example of the way this particular battle was widely publicised because of the exceptional loss of two important warships and their commanders, as well as many others of high social standing. Other reports from Venetian diplomats on English affairs can be found in the Calendar of State Papers Venetian, available on British History Online. The bits in this account about English life are fascinating because they offer a view of how the English were seen at the time, and it seems to be that they were slightly eccentric. 
The account is read by Andrea Capello from Turin. In England, the houses are all of wood, and both rooms and corridors are of the same material. Over the floors, they strew weeds called rushes, which resemble reeds and which grow on the water. Every eight or ten days, they put down a fresh layer. The cost of each layer being a Venetian livre, more or less, according to the size of the house. In England, the women go to the market for household provisions. If gentlewomen, they are preceded by two men servants. Their usual vesture is a cloth petticoat over the shift, lined with grey squirrels or some other fur. Over the petticoat, they wear a long gown lined with some choice fur. The gentlewomen carry the train of the gown under the arm. The commonality pin it behind or before or at one side. The sleeves of the gown sit as close as possible, are long and unslashed throughout. The cuffs being lined with some choice fur. The headgear is of various sorts of velvet, cap fashion, with lappets hanging down behind over their shoulders like two hoods, and in front they have two others, lined with some other silk. Their hair is not seen, so cannot say whether it be light or dark. Others wear on their heads muslins, which are distended and hang at their backs, but not far down. Some draw their hair from under a kerchief and wear over the hair a cap, for the most part white, round and seemly. Others again wear a kerchief in folds on the head, but be the fashion as it may, the hair is never seen. Their stockings are black and their shoes doubly soled, of various colors, but no one wears chopins, as they are not in use in England. When they meet friends in the street, they shake hands and kiss on the mouth and go to some tavern to regale. Their relatives not taking this amiss, as such is the custom. The women are very beautiful and good-tempered. The men are well-made, tall and stout, well-clad, wearing gowns called doublets plaited on their shoulders, reaching halfway down the leg and lined with several sorts of very fine furs. On their heads, they wear caps with one or two ornaments, with short hair like the priest in Venice, the hair over the forehead being cut away. In England, no one makes bread at home, but every morning all take it at the baker's and keep tallies there. At present, bread is dear on account of the war. The price of meat has more than doubled, as a militia has been salted for the army. And by day and night, and on all festivals, the cannon founders are at work. The Venetian ambassador is at great expense, as he daily receives visits from one nobleman or another most especially now that Parliament is sitting. The floors of the English houses are for the most part planked. Aloft are the window sills, which are all wood. They put rosemary, sage and other herbs. In England it is always windy, and however warm the weather, the natives invariably wear furs. At present it has not yet been cold here, nor is it rainy or muddy. The summers are never very hot, neither is it ever very cold. The King of England is an army of picked men in Scotland, under a valiant commander called my Lord Treasurer, one of the King's chief ministers, a man 70 years old and upwards, to whom on the Scottish border the King of Scotland sent Carta Bianca, and they made terms together. 
It is said in England that the perfidious king of France caused the king of Scots to attack King Henry, but that the English had made provision betimes. A third force consisting of a number of ships under a valiant admiral, the men being all picked, is at sea. They sighted a Frenchman, on board of which were 200 French gentlemen, whereupon a brave captain of an English ship went into action against it, with his own vessel alone. The engagement lasted until both ships caught fire and were burned, all the hands being drowned. But France was by far the greater loser, for 200 gentlemen were on board the Frenchmen, whereas England did but lose the captain. On which account the English are more than ever determined not to hear the Frenchman named. The Parliament has decided that the King is to cross the Channel in the spring, in person, with 60,000 troops, all picked men, a match for 100,000. It is said that the King of France will not even fight, and that the King of England will have a great victory. Formerly, many rich French merchants had houses in London, some of those who remain have been imprisoned, and their goods seized and sequestrated. Some French tradesmen have also remained, but when the English found them abroad, they maltreated them. A tax of a tent has been levied throughout the kingdom. The lords and great personages pay according to their property. Tradesmen, servants and attendants, one penny per head, equal to 28 Venetian piccoli. This tax will yield a million of gold, so that the king means to make war. The king is a young man of three and twenty. When he moves, the ground shakes under him. He is well made, tall and stout, and very fond of the Venetian ambassador, whom he chooses to accompany him, so that the ambassador requires money for his outfit. The second account is from Thomas Wolsey to the Bishop of Worcester, August 1512. At the time of writing of this letter, Wolsey had been appointed almoner of Henry VIII, so responsible for distributing alms, and therefore a member of the Privy Council. His first step into public life in the reign of Henry VII had been as a royal chaplain and private secretary to Richard Fox, the Bishop of Worcester, one of the King's most trusted councillors. At this date, Fox still had influence with the young king, but was strongly opposed to the idea of war with France. Wolsey is reporting news of the battle, but this letter gives little hint of the tensions over foreign policy between the two, which was to lead to the older man retiring into private life in 1516. It is read by Tim Kincannon. And to ascertain you of the lamentable and sorrowful tidings and chance which hath fortuned by the sea, our folks, on Tuesday fortnight, met with 21 great ships of France, the best with sail and furnished with artillery and men that ever was seen. And after innumerable shooting of guns and long chasing one another, at the last, the regent most valiantly boarded the great Carrick of Brest, wherein were four lords, 300 gentlemen, 800 soldiers and mariners, 400 crossbowmen, a hundred gunners, two... 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 100 tons of wine. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 100 pipes of beef, 60 barrels of gunpowder, and 15 great brazen kirtles, with so marvellous a number of shot and other guns of every sort. Our men so valiantly equipped themselves that within one hour of fight they had utterly vanquished with shot of guns and arrows the said Carrick, and slain most part of the men within the same. And suddenly, as they were yielding themselves, the carrack was one flaming fire, and likewise the regent within the turning of one hand. She was so anchored and fastened to the carrack, by no means possible she might for her safeguard depart from the same. And so both in fight within three hours were burned, and most of the part of the men in them. Sir Thomas Nivet, which most valiantly quit himself that day, was slain with one gun. Sir John Carew, with divers others, whose names be not yet known, be likewise slain. The residue of the French fleet, after long chasing, was by our folks put to flight and driven off into Brest Haven. There were six as great ships of the said fleet as the regent or the sovereign, albeit as cowards they fled. Sir Edward hath made his vow to God that he will never see the king in the face, he hath revenged the death of the noble and valiant knight Sir Thomas Nivet. The final account is from Edward Etchingham to Thomas Wolsey, written in May 1513, and explores the events of the summer after the Battle of Saint Mathieu, when Edward Howard launched a bold, but perhaps crazy and suicidal are more appropriate adjectives, attack on a squadron of French galleys at Blanc-Sablon near Brest.
Etchingham was the commander of the fleet of Vittlers, which reached Howard's fleet off Brest shortly before the events in the Bay of Blanc-Sablon. He was therefore well-placed to give an account of the battle and the loss of Howard. Wolsey, by this time, was clearly in charge of the war with France, both from the point of view of policy and that of logistics. Etchingham's letter was written on his return to Plymouth on the 5th of May. The account is read by the playwright and author Daniel Jameson. Sir, for to write unto you the news of these parties, they be so dolorous that an unth I can write them for sorrow. Howbeit I found you so, good master, unto me, that it hath pleased you to cause the king's most noble grace to write unto me, which hath encouraged me for to send you in writing of these things that I have seen. Upon Friday, the which was the twenty-second day of April, Six galleys and four foists came through part the king's navy, and there they sank the ship that was Master Compton's, and strake through one of the king's new barks, the which Sir Stephen Bull is captain of, in seven places, that they that was within the ship hath much pain to hold her above the water. Then the ship's boats took one of the foists and the residue of the galleys, and foists, and went into Whitson Bay, beside Conquet, and there they lay Saturday all day. Upon Sunday, my Lord Admiral appointed six thousand men for to land between Whitson Bay and Conquet, and so to come unto the backside of the galleys. And as we were landing, my Lord Admiral espied Sabine coming under sail, and then that purpose was lost, for every captain had put his men into victuals, and my Lord Admiral send Mr. Fitzwilliam unto all them that were captains of the great ships for to return into the trade, whereas the great ships lay before the haven of Brest, and so for to abide still before the haven of Brest, that the army of France should not come out, willist that the small ships should run upon the galleys and the small ships and the greats lay four miles. Upon St Mark's Day, the which was the twenty-fifth day of April, my Lord Admiral, Sir Edward Howard, appointed four captains and himself for to board the galleys. At four o'clock in the afternoon, my said Lord went into one of the galleys himself with eighty men with him, and in the other, my Lord Ferris, with such company as to him seemed best, and with two small crayers, in one of the crayers went Sir Thomas Wallop, and the other went Sir Henry Sherburne and William Sidney. And these were they that enterprised for to win the French galleys, with the help of the boats, for there could no ship come to them for lack of water. For the said French galleys lay in a bay between rocks, and on both sides of the galleys were made bulwarks, which lay full of ordnance, that no boat or vessel could come unto them, but that they must come between the bulwarks, the which were so thick with guns and crossbows, that the quarrels and gunstones came together as thick as it had been hailstones. For all this, my lord would needs board the galleys in his own person, for there could no man counsel him to the contrary. 
and at the hour above written, he boarded the galley that Prior John was in. And as soon as he was aboard of Prior John's galley, he leapt out of his own galley into the forecastle of Prior John's galley, and Charan the Spaniard with him with sixteen other persons. Sir, by advice of my Lord Admiral and Charan, they had cast their anchor and fastened the cable to the capstan. For this consideration, if it happened, any of the galleys to have been on fire, that they might have veered the cable and have fallen off. The Frenchman did hew us under the cable, or else some of our said mariners in our galley let slip the cable, when my Lord Admiral went into the French galley. And all for fear of the ordnance that was on the galleys and from the land, and so they left this poor Admiral in the hands of his enemies, whereas by diverse men saying the Morris Pikes. Sir, there was a mariner that the witch is wounded in eighteen places, the witch by adventure recovered unto the boy of the galley, and so the boat of the galley took him up. And he saith that he saw my Lord Admiral thrust up against the rails of the galley with Morris Pikes. Also, Sharan's boy telleth the tale in like manner. For when his master and my Lord Admiral were entered into the galley, Sharan bade his boy fetch him his handgun. And when he came up with the gun to deliver it to his master, the one galley was off from the other. And he saith he see my Lord Admiral waving with his hands and crying to the galley, Come aboard again, come aboard again. And when my lord saw that the galley could not come to him again, the boy said he saw him take his whistle from about his neck and wrap it together and hurled it into the sea. And thus he lost sight of my said lord admiral. Sir, for to know the more surety whether he were alive or not, we send in a boat to the shore a standard of peace. And in the boat went Thomas Chain, Richard Cornwall and Wallop, for to have knowledge whether they had taken any Englishmen prisoners or not. And when they came to the shore, there came unto them two gentlemen of France, who asked them what they would have, and they said they came to speak with the Admiral of France. And there Thomas Chain met with acquaintance of the Queen of France court. And thus, as they were talking and making cheer each to other, came... Prior John, riding on horseback. And so they asked if they had taken any prisoners English or not. For Thomas Chain said he had a kinsman that was either taken or slain among them. And if they had him, that they would assign him to his ransom and he would pay it. Or else that he might be well kept, that they should be richly rewarded for his keeping. And then Prior John stepped forth himself and said to them, Sirs, I ensure you I have no prisoners English within my galley, but one, and he is a mariner, but there was one that leapt into my galley with a gilt target on his arm, the which I cast overboard with Morris Pikes, and the mariner that I have prisoner told me that that same man was your admiral. Sir, I have forgotten to write to you of the galley that my Lord Ferris was in with the other company. Sir, 
there came in my Lord Ferris with his galley, fell among the other galleys, and there he shot all his ordnance, both powder and stone, that he had within board, and he shot two hundred sheaf of arrows among them in the galleys. And then came Thomas Chain and Wallop in their crayer, and they shot their ordnance such as they had. And then came Sir Henry Sherburne and Sir William Sidney, and they rushed aboard a Prior John's galley and brake part of his oars on one side. The great ships lay without any more doing, for they knew not perfectly where my Lord Admiral was. Sir, when the whole army knew that my Lord Admiral was either taken or slain, I trow there was never men more full of sorrow than all we were, for there was never noble man so ill lost as he was, that was of so great courage and had so many virtues, and that rowled so great an army so well as he did, and kept so good order and true justice. Thank you all so much for listening. Do please follow us wherever you engage on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. Please do particularly check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page. It's full of wonderful, innovative ways of presenting our maritime past. And for those of you listening on an iPhone, please just take a few moments to rate or review this podcast on iTunes. It makes an enormous difference to the amount of people who listen. But best of all, please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. It really doesn't cost very much, but it supports this podcast. You also get four printed journals a year. You can sign up to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory. And it supports all of the worthwhile goodness that the Society does to publish the world's most important maritime history and preserve our maritime past. <laughs>